freedom fighters. The gospel is freedom fighters. Do you look at yourself as a freedom fighter? Do you see yourself as a soldier? Do you look at yourself as a soldier? You know, the Jude chapter 1 says that we need to contend for the faith. The idea is this, that ever since the Garden of Eden, sin entered the world, there's, a, there's been a fight for truth. Contending for the truth. There's a truth war going on. There's, it's been for the last thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and it will continue to do until Christ comes back and the earth is destroyed, and finally there's heaven. Truth needs to be contended for. We need, to, we need to be soldiers of the truth. We need to be the gospel's freedom fighters. We need to know what the gospel is, and we need to be able to defend it. And that's really what the book of Galatians is all about, especially chapters 1 through 4. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, it says, You therefore, this is Timothy speaking, you therefore must, or excuse me, Paul speaking to Timothy, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier. And he tells us to be good soldiers. But it's not just a good soldier, it's a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then he says, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who, is, who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul says, listen, Timothy, if you're going to be a good soldier, keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on his uh, plan. You know, it, it, we have a lot of soldiers. In fact, it, we were praying for them in ABF. But the reality is we don't expect soldiers that are over in Iraq or Afghanistan to concern themselves with the piddly stuff that's even going around in America right here. They have to keep their focus on the enemy and what the commander wants them to do. When it comes to Christ, we are His good soldiers and we need to keep our eyes on what the gospel is and keep defending that because it's constantly under attack. And so Paul, again in chapter 1, has basically made the statement and he defended and we won't go back through, we've done it a number of times, that listen, the, that, I, that the gospel I preach is not from man. You can see that in verses 11 and 12. It's not from man. I didn't get it from man. I got it by revelation of Christ. But then in chapter 2, he wants to know that though I didn't get the message from another man, the message I preach is what the other apostles are preaching. And that's what we're talking about today. See, that's real important. Paul wants to make sure that everyone knows that the, the message he's preaching is not different from the rest of the other apostles. There's not two gospels out there. In fact, I even hear to this day people saying, well, you know, like in the Old Testament, you got saved one way, in the New Testament another, and if you preach to a Muslim, you preach it this way, and if you preach it to a Baptist, you preach it this way. There's only one message. There's only one gospel. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, since you're in chapter 2 there, he's we see where Paul's visit to Jerusalem. It says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem. And as we said, this is I believe he's, he's talking about the Jerusalem council. This is the third time he's gone to Jerusalem. The first time was just to get acquainted with Peter and James. The second time was to give them a, a love offering to the saints in Jerusalem because uh, many of them were during a famine. So he brought money, brought you know help physical help to the, the saints of Jerusalem. But this particular time, 14 years later, is when he went up to the Jerusalem council. 
Last week, we really didn't turn and look at it, but let's look at it in some depth today. Acts 15. This is the Jerusalem Council. Acts chapter 15. You want to turn there. And we'll just highlight it. Actually, the first 29 verses, I think. Yeah, 29 verses. Again, I believe that Paul is talking about this event right here when he says, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. Chapter 15, verse 1. By the way, up to chapter 15, what's happened? Paul has, again, come twice. And he's already gone his first missionary journey, which is up to southern Galatia and back. Chapter 15, verse 1, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. Some came down and taught the brethren. Who are these people? Look at what they said. Unless you, you, you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. These are the Judaizers. Okay? These brethren, these... And again, I think he's referring to false brethren came down, because that's what he called them in the other. Look at verse 2. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had, had no small dissension and dispute with them, they, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles, to the elders about this question. Okay, so these, these uh, certain men, again, the false brethren, were teaching the true brethren. And the question is, do you have to get circumcised? Do you have to obey the law? Do you have to obey the dietary law? Do you have to meet on Saturday? Do you have to meet on the Sabbath instead of uh, the Lord's Day, Sunday? See, everything plays in here. And so they go up to Jerusalem. By the way, notice it says uh, it was Paul and Barnabas and certain others. I think one of the certain others is Titus. Because we know that Titus went up with them too. Verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia, Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. Again, everything had to do with, you know, they knew how a Jew got saved, but they weren't sure about the Gentiles. Did they have to become proselytes of Judaism? Did they have to get circumcised? And they caused great joy to all their brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church, the apostles, and the elders. And they reported all the things that God had done with them. I mean, can you imagine the praise session they had? Not only are the Jews getting saved, the Gentiles are getting saved. Look at verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So, there, see, this is the transition. And what's happening is perhaps some were truly saved, but they kept saying, Well, but they have to become Jews. They have to become circumcised. You have to keep the law. Verse 6, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, much dispute, and I believe it wasn't just with the Pharisees and just with these other brethren, it was even among the apostles. They were, Is this true? Do they, do they have to become circumcised? Well, one rose up. In fact, you see three people speaking. The first one is here. Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago... God chose among us that, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Who was that, by the way? Who was the first convert of, of the Gentiles? Peter led them to the Lord. Cornelius, right? Cornelius. So he says, with my own mouth, I remember. I mean, he got saved. So God, who knows the heart, and acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, just like us, and made no distinction between us and them. In other words, us being Jews, them being Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. Notice that, underline that, by faith, not by the law. 
Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke, you know, the yoke of the law on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? You can't bear the, the law. The law just condemns us, brings us to Christ. It doesn't save us. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same day. In the, excuse me, in the same manner as they. So that was Peter. He, Peter stood up. He proclaimed truth. And now look at this, verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul. Now they get up. Right? And they're going to present truth. All they say is this, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. He, they just basically gave a praise report. Hey, you're telling us that they're not getting saved? Let me tell you, they're getting saved. And then verse 13, and then after, after they had become silent, James, and he was the leader of the church. This is the brother of John. By this point, James and John, you know, James, the brother of John, had already been killed by Herod. So this is James, the brother of John, answered, or excuse me, James, the brother of Christ, answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God had first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as I have written. Now, now look at verse 16. This is from the prophet Amos. Look at verse 17, actually. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. The Old Testament prophets said that the Gentiles were someday going to be brought into the family of God. Look at verse 18. Election known to God from eternity. That's election. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. But he said, this is what we probably should, we should have them do at least this. If a Gentile gets saved, at least have them do this. Number one, abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. In other words, don't be an offense to your Jewish brethren just to be an offense. In fact, they were so convinced... Verse 22, that the apostles, the elders, and the whole church sent chosen men and Paul and Barnabas to Antioch, and they give some other names, and basically say, uh, reported what they had decided at the Jerusalem Council. Now again, I've taken about five minutes to go through that because I want you to see it. That's, what, that's why Paul and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem. And that was the definitive statement right there. Okay, Gentiles do not have to become Jews. You know what it takes for you to be you know what it takes for you to become a Christian? You receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's it. You don't have to get, you don't have to receive Christ and then okay, now tell me the laws I have to live under. Okay, now I have to be circumcised. No, I have to start worshiping on on uh, Saturday. You know what you need to to, to be a believer in Jesus Christ, to have your sins forgiven, you need to put your full faith and trust in His sacrifice for you that He did on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sin. That's all. So, for by grace are you saved, through faith, what? Because of Christ alone. 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 So that's the visit. Well, getting back to your outline, Paul then, he mentioned some companions, again in verse uh, two, or excuse me, uh, verse, this last part of verse one, Barnabas and Titus. Now, Barnabas, again, is a circumcised Jew. Titus is an uncircumcised Gentile. And the question is, as he's going up to this Jerusalem council, all these people, all this pressure, is he going to have Titus circumcised? 
And he preaches the message in verse 2. And again, we've just, we've just looked at it. And even Titus, verse 3, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled, was compelled, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. I mean, Titus wasn't circumcised. No, because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Now again, these brethren, verse 4, they snuck in. False brethren secretly brought in by stealth to spy. That's, that's terminology of an enemy. The enemy will always come in by stealth. I keep saying this. The, the enemy is not going to come in saying, I'm, from, I, I'm representing Satan. You know? I'm a false teacher. Can I join your church? It's always stealth. You know, even to this day, the gospel, again, is under attack. Again, the gospel says that through his death, through Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus Christ has done everything that needs to be done for our salvation. That's the gospel. We keep saying it. If we were, try, if we were to try to add anything to that free and gracious gospel, I like what one guy said, it would be like taking an Olympic gold medal and having it bronzed. The good news of the cross and the empty tomb cannot be improved. It can only be destroyed. You can't improve on the gospel, but you can destroy it by adding to it. This is a constant danger for the church. Christians are always trying to add something to the gospel. Now, that sounds real odd, doesn't it? That Christians try to add something to the gospel. They elevate some aspect of Christianity to a place of supreme importance so that the good news becomes faith in Christ plus something else. Usually what gets added to the gospel is something good in and of itself. Now let me throw this out. Let me kind of play this up. What do I mean by this? Well, somebody, some people might uh, use a particular experience of theirs. In other words, they might say it this way. Well, yeah, you need to get saved but then, if you're really going to know that you're saved, and I've heard this. In fact, I've even heard it this way. That if, you, if you really, uh, in order to get saved, you need to speak in tongues. So you've got to have that experience. Because if you don't have that experience, then let me just tell you right now, either you're a second-rate Christian or not a Christian at all. Do you see what's just happened there? An experience has been re, uh, elevated. No, no. It's, it, it's, it's by... Grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Now, you don't need the, bap the baptism of the Spirit in the way that they're saying. Actually, you get baptized by the Spirit the moment you get saved. You're placed in the body of Christ. Or some might say, well, you need to be involved with this particular special ministry. Like this, if you're not involved with helping the poor, I don't know how you could even, get to, how you could even be saved. Well, there's this implication that if a person is truly saved, they're just going to always be totally involved with helping the poor. That's not true. We each have gifts and abilities. I mean, if you don't have devotions, I don't see how you could be saved. Or if you're not involved in your family, it shows that somehow maybe God's not really in your life. I mean, again, and they would never say it this way, Christ plus family or Christ plus devotions. But the implication is if this is not in your life, how could you be even saved? I mean, if you vote Democrat, can you really be a Christian? I've heard that. I have heard that. Well, but... 
you know, let's be careful here. I mean, if you go to that type of church and they worship that way, you know, it's amazing the worship wars, the music wars that go on. You know, are you traditional? Are you? But we we just went to a church that actually had three. It was contemporary, worship, or uh, traditional, and there was one other one, progressive, I think they called it, or something like that. And people and Christians are judging each other for this, you know, and it's like the gospel many times, I think, is just being trampled on because what's really important out there is it's by, you know, we saved by faith through, by grace through faith in Christ alone, right? Because of Christ. And it's all alone. So again, I think we keep, sometimes we have a tendency and we don't even do it you know, like that we're cognitive of it. We're just, but we're adding stuff saying, well, if a true Christian is, no, a true Christian is one who has recognized that they are a sinner before a holy God and condemned. And they look to Jesus Christ knowing that his sacrifice on the cross paid it all. That's why the old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. By the way, but our hope is also built on nothing more than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Right? So again, these were men, <coughs> these, the enemies of the cross were men who were trying, were legalists, were trying to say that the, the law, legalism is what produced salvation. You had to follow the law. And again, you have to be careful. I think I said, as I said last week, legalism means that you're, you think you're being saved by keeping the law. Standards are living obedient to God's moral law. We should not be legalists, but we certainly should have standards. And to go back, should you have devotions? What's the answer? Absolutely. Should you have focus on your family? Should there be focus you know, about your family? Yes. I mean, should you, re- should you re- vote Republican? No. Vote biblical. You know, but don't make that the, the test of whether or not a person is saved. And even Paul said, look at verse 5. I didn't even submit to them for even an hour because he knew what was under, he knew that the gospel was, was under the microscope. And he, and he walked out of Jerusalem without Titus being circumcised. By the way, I want you to remember this. Next chapter, chapter 16, Paul comes, has another young man with him. He's not an uncircumcised Gentile. He's an uncircumcised Jew. It's Timothy. He's half Jew, half Greek. And you know what Paul does to Timothy? He circumcises him. Now think about that. But this is why, because Timothy is his companion and he's going to a number of synagogues and he doesn't want to be a stumbling block to the Jews that need the gospel. In other words, it goes back to 1 Corinthians 9, I'll become all things to all men. Because it wasn't doctrine that was under consideration with Timothy. It was just that he didn't want to be a stumbling block. When it came to Titus at the Jerusalem council, listen to this, if Paul had had, uh, circumcised Timothy, if he had had him circumcised, the whole gospel would have been corrupted at that point. Because what happens teaches. What happens to Titus would have taught. And it did. No, a Gentile did not have to be circumcised. Now, when it came to a half-Jew, Timothy? Yeah. Because circumcision is nothing, whether you're circumcised or not. And to not be a a stumbling block to the people I'm trying to reach, yeah, just get them circumcised, let's move on. Because it had nothing to do with the doctrine of the gospel. Well, let's go to verse 6. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. 
God shows no partial, partial favorite, uh, uh, no personal favoritism to no man. In other words, and, and I think verse six, he's looking at, at perspective. He, he kind of like steps back and he says, listen, um, let me give you some perspectives. And, and, and I believe in verse six is where we see the triumph of Paul. I think I put that in your, the triumph, Paul's triumph with truth. And he's looking specifically at his message, verses six to eight. And he's saying, listen, I, I want you to see how, how I look at people. His perspective. He says, you know, there's some who seem to be something. I think that was what the Judaizers, I think that was a crack at the Judaizers, the way that the Judaizers looked at people. See, he, they had exalted the apostles of Jerusalem. They thought they were something. And so when the Judaizers left Jerusalem and they, they went out to disseminate all their false teaching, they would say, well, you know, you know I, I, I've come just right from Peter. And, 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 I, and I know James. I had, in fact, I had chicken wings with him just a couple of days ago. And... You know, pulled pork? No, not pulled pork. Uh, I thought that's what I heard. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? I think, so really, that, I think verse 6, the first part of it is the Judaizers' perspective. You know, but from those who seem to be something. Where did Paul get that? Well, that's what the Judaizers are saying. Pillars, you know. I think you notice about four different times, Paul sarcastically is saying, listen, they're nobody. They're just the apostles, but they're apostles sent by Christ. He's, he's who somebody is Christ. Look at, so we go from the Judaizers' perspective to verse 6b, the Paul's perspective. Whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. Because again, he was defending his right to be an apostle. Because the Judaizers were saying this, Paul, he's a false apostle. He's a self-appointed one. Don't listen to him. He's inferior. So Paul says, listen, it makes no difference to me. He's not being disrespectful. He's just saying, listen, they don't trump my position because they were appointed by Christ and I was too. Remember Paul, he says over in Timothy, I am the chief of sinners. In fact, in, in Corinthians, he said, I am the least of all the apostles. What does he mean by that? He's just saying, listen, I'm not going to try to trump them and they shouldn't trump me. We're all sent. And by the way, I I love that humility. I I wish we could all have that type of humility. I hope I have that type of humility. Oh, John, you're the pastor. No, I'm just one called to do a particular uh, work for a short time and then I'm gone. That's all. And depending on how well I do before Christ will depend on my rewards before him. But you don't like bow before me. Notice I don't have any rings on like you kissed the ring. We don't do that, right? By the way, I don't have a ring on this. I think sometimes I don't even have a wedding band on because every time I wear gold, it all gets all, it uh, starts to bleed. It's kind of a weird thing. I've thought about tattooing a ring on, but I don't know. <laughs> Can you be a Christian and have a tattoo? I, you know, I know. Um, <laughs> anyways. All right, so Paul's perspective about himself. You know, go over to 1 Corinthians 4. I'll, t- I'll show you his perspective of himself. 1 Corinthians 4.1. 1 Corinthians 4.1. This is Paul's perspective of himself. 1 to 5. He says, Let a man so consider us, us being the, uh, the leaders of the church. That's who the us is. Us, the leaders of the church, as servants... Of Christ. The word servant is under rower. 
We did a long study on this about six months ago. Under rower. It's the slave in the galley ship that is rowing. It's like the third level down. It's where all the water and the filth and the excrement of the, of the, of the, um, the slaves that are on first floor and second floor drop down to the person on the third floor. That's the under rower. It was the darkest, dirtiest, place to be. You had no rights. If you didn't do what the master said, you were thrown overboard and died. And Paul just says, listen, I just look at myself as an under rower. Do you look at yourself as an under rower or do you think you have rights? If, if the great apostle Paul said, I have no rights, then we should say the same. And he said that not only of Christ, but in a steward of the mysteries of God, I'm a steward. God has given me something. I need to be a good steward. Look at what else he said. Moreover, is required in stewards. This person should be faithful. I need to end faithfully. But with me, verse 3, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. You know, the Corinthians were judging Paul. So Paul was constantly being judged by people. But he says, you know, it's a very small thing that I'm judged by you or by a human court and other someone else's opinion. In fact, I don't, I don't even judge myself. I mean, I really can't know my true intent, for I know nothing against myself. In other words, I have a pure conscience. That's what he means there. I, I know nothing. Uh, I know nothing against myself. There's nothing that that dirties my conscience. I don't know of any sin in my life. Isn't it a great thing to walk with God, knowing that your conscience is pure? Have you ever had sin in your life and it just keeps eating away? And you know what the the temptation is, is you, if, you, if you deaden that sin before long, you'll walk away. You'll walk through life not realizing that you are not having fellowship with God because sin is there, but it's become deadened. And don't you know, God, that I was right and blowing up at that person and they should apologize to me. And you come up with all these excuses as to why you're not repenting and confessing your sin. So he says, you know, nothing's against me, yet I am not justified by this. In other words, I'm not saying that I'm justified because I know I have a very wicked heart. I have a deceitful heart, Paul says. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time, final time, end of judgment, until the Lord comes, who will bring both to bring to light the hidden things of darkness, probably sin, and reveal the counsels of the heart, the motivations. He says, you know what? People can judge me, judge me, judge me, but I'm just seeking to have a pure conscience. And I don't even know. He's going to, I'm sure God is going to show me some other things because I still have a deceitful heart. That's why I've got to keep praying, Lord, open my heart up. Help me to see areas that need changing because I have a deceitful heart. But when it's all said and done, Paul says, listen, I'm not going to worry about people's opinion of me. I really only care about God's opinion of me. Boy, isn't that a great way to live? Can you see why he had such power? He wasn't walking around. Well, what does he think? What does she think? Oh, they're criticizing me. Oh, I'm so hurt. I think sometimes we like to be hurt. We like the criticism so we can, we can be frustrated with people. Keep your eyes on God. By the way, criticism. Let me just say a word about criticism. Criticism is deadly, especially to the proud person. Especially to the proud. Humility will never be more on trial than when criticism comes. Paul is not looking for applause. You can see he's a humble person because because criticism does not paralyze Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. But you know what? If you're a proud person, I want you to know this, that if you're criticized, that can all but paralyze a proud person. 
Unless your eyes are on God, because a proud person, if I get criticized and I'm a proud person, immediately I pull in the defenses and I get the army ready to strike out, right? You have to be careful. Next time someone criticizes you, see what your response is. Is it like Paul's? Hey, listen, it's a small thing. I know I, I'm seeking to have a pure conscience and I'm just seeking to, you know, for the day of judgment when God, when Christ can judge me. Because He knows. Even I don't know everything about myself. Well, go back to Galatians chapter 2. I can see I'm running out of time as always. He goes from the Judaizers' perspective, they seem to be something, to his perspective, makes no difference to me. Now he says God's perspective. God shows personal favoritism to no man. Or to say it in our vernacular, God is not impressed by me. God is not impressed by you. If you're saved, you're a sinner saved by grace. You're one who should have been damned, and yet God has saved you and put in his family. And everything good about you is because of God, not because of us. So why should he be impressed? He doesn't show no he doesn't show personal favoritism to anyone. That's God's perspective. That's a great perspective to hold on to. Well, that is true. Now, again, Paul may be looked upon as being, well, you're pretty caustic against the apostles. So let me give you the perspective of how you should look at us, okay? And I say us as the leaders of this church, okay? Because I don't want to leave here and then you just kind of walk out, oh, basically, you know, pastor was telling us today, hey, we don't have to really worry about the leaders or anyone else, you know, God. Well, actually, in other writings, this is how it says. Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey. The word means trust. Be persuaded by those who rule over you and be submissive. Submissive means don't resist. In other words, yield. In other words, listen. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive to them. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. How would God want you to respond to the elders, the leaders of this church? He would want you to listen. To, to not hold at arm's length the, the directions we want to go as a church and as individuals. It goes on, it says, Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So are you one who is persuaded? Are you the type of person who does not resist? That's what it means by submissive. Do you resist or do you, do you not resist? Do you yield to the direction that the elders wants to have in your life? 1 Thessalonians 5 says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor, labor, that, that's word, wearied or exhausted for you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them, count high, esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. I mean, here's a passage that he says, esteem them, because they're working for your soul. They work, work, work. I would hope that you would esteem the elders of our church the leaders of our church, the teachers of our church. You know, Paul says, listen, it makes no difference to me who they are in the sense that their apostleship is the same. But let's not think, well, yeah, and you should have that attitude with every person. No, it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter if it's Lee Ryan or... Well, wait a second here. If they're watching over your soul, you should stop and say, listen, am I really listening? Am I seeking to follow? Am I seeking to grow with their help? So again, we have to be careful. 
That's his perspective. Then he goes on to his stewardship, verse 7. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, had been committed and trusted to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, there's a stewardship. He, he uses that word committed. That's where I get words uh, stewardship. <coughs> now, Paul loved the Jews, but his main ministry was to the Gentiles. It was committed to him. It was entrusted to him. And for Peter, and he just uses one of the, the apostles as a, like the umbrella, and to Peter was entrusted the, to the circumcised. And so now you're entrusted. Paul says, listen, I have this, I have this, this, this thing committed to me. It's called the gospel. And, and I was thinking about that. You know, we are all entrusted with at least three things. I mean, from the passage. Not only was Paul entrusted with the gospel, you're entrusted with the gospel. <clears throat> it's been committed to you as well. And like 1 Corinthians 4.1 says, it's a stewardship of the mysteries. Are you, are you defending the gospel because it's been committed to you? It's, it's kind of like a baton. The gospel was passed to me, and now I'm passing it to others. And the same thing with you. The gospel is committed to you and entrusted, and you have to keep passing it on without letting it get corrupted. Uh, Timothy 6, Paul tells Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. That word committed there means something that has been placed that's very valuable for your trust, and it's going to be, you know, you've got to give it back someday. It's, so it's a deposit, something that you're going to... And, and when it comes to the gospel, God gave it to you, He saved you, and now you need to pass it on without letting it get corrupted. But you know, there's other things that are committed to your uh, care as well, entrusted. You have a, if you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. That's been entrusted to you. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one. That manifestation, there is spiritual gift. In other words, if you're part of the body of Christ, saved by the blood of Christ, you have a spiritual gift. It's been committed. It's been entrusted to you. It's a deposit. But the second part of that verse says, and I want you to, it's been given to you for the profit of all. I think you have to ask yourself some questions. What is your spiritual endowment? You know, we're talking about, again, Paul says, hey, listen, it was committed to me. That's the gospel. But how does the gospel get played out in my life? It's really through my spiritual gift. I think I have the gift of, of teaching. I teach. What am I teaching? The gospel. If you have the gift of encouragement, what are you doing? You're encouraging, but who are you encouraging? Other believers, how? You're encouraging them to stay focused on the gospel. I think all the spiritual gifts have to do with the gospel. It all drives people towards God and his good news about Jesus Christ. But do you have a spiritual endowment? Uh, how does God use you? Let me just, I'm just giving you some questions. How does God use you? I know some of you, like you would come to me and say, I'm not sure how God used me. You've got to ask that question. How does God use me? Where are you most needed? I think that's the question to ask. This all has to do with spiritual gifts. Not only where are you most needed, but where do you find yourself most effective? And how have other people encouraged you? I think a lot of this has to, if you want to find out your spiritual gift, not only use the, you know, you, uh, take uh, the opportunities given to you, but then ask others how you work. Were they a blessing in your life? Did they grow closer to Christ because of your ministry? 
See, these are the spiritual gift has been entrusted to me. And I think I need to listen. I need to receive the instruction of others. And sometimes we want a different ministry than what God has planned for us. And that's very frustrating, but that's very true at times. In other words, sometimes it plays out like this. A person wants this to do, but God actually planned it that you would do this. No, I don't want you to be a teacher. I want you to be... We're supposed to use it for all, the profit of all. And that gets into the specific things of ministry. In other words, what is your passion? Who do you care for? Who do you pray for? Who do you sacrifice for? Who would you be willing to sacrifice for? Because that's taking the spiritual gift and actually applying it to a specific group of people. Just like Paul. That's what it, I mean, it, he was entrusted, but specifically to the Gentiles where Peter was to the Jews. Does, does that mean he never shared the good news with the Jew? No, he would go into Newtown and often go to the synagogue first. But his primary audience was the Gentiles. I think it's the same way with us. We have gifts and abilities. And, and I tell you, it, there's nothing like knowing what God wants you to do and being able to zero right in on it and putting your passions and your energy to that what God wants you to do. So I would encourage you to think of yourself as being uh, entrusted with God, the gospel, a spiritual gift, and I believe a, a group of people, something you're supposed to do. So in other words, Lord, I know the gospel. It's, it's, it's by faith, through grace, because of Christ. I've got to protect that. Now, you've, been, you've given me a spiritual gift, but now I need to know how, who is that spiritual gift going to be ministered to? And, and at that point, don't you have some fear? I mean, really. If you're, if, you're, if you're connecting with what I'm saying, there's got to be fear there. I mean, Lord, I'm representing you of your eternal truth and ministering to your people. I, can, I don't think I can do that. Well, look at what Paul says in verse 8. This is the power. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. God says, listen, I'll give you the power. You don't have to fear I am with you. And that's his message. I have the perspective that God is watching. I have the truth that has uh, been committed to me. And I have the power because it's the Holy Spirit that's going to be doing it through me. And then verse 9, quickly. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, again, that's what the Judaizers were saying, oh, these are the pillars, seemed to be pillars, Perceive the grace that had been given to me. They gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. I mean, I just love these three guys. Think about the differences in these three guys. First of all, you have James. James the leader. Again, the Lord's brother. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church. He apparently was very patient because when we looked at Acts 15, remember, he was the last one to speak. He must have been very analytical. He let everyone speak, Peter, Barnabas, Paul, everything else. And then he finally stood up and said, okay, this is, this is what we've decided. He was patient. He was strong. He was compassionate. He was authoritative. He was like the rock. That's James. But then we have Peter. Peter had a tendency to be bold, like one guy said, blustery, impulsive given to speaking and acting before he thought, but very passionate. And then you have John, more contemplative, visionary, impressionable, 
but not without a temper, whom the Lord loved. Now think about that. I mean, I, I'm just thinking about, you know, we just looked at Paul, and, you know, he's going to the Gentiles, Peter to the, un, uh, to the circumcised, the Jews. And yet, and then he just mentions these three guys, you know, who we've been interacting with. And, and, but you think how different. And yet every one of them loved Christ. Every one of them was different and yet unified on the same message. And as you look at this group here, I could start carrying your, uh, showing your characteristic. And you are such, 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 and you are such. And sometimes we want everyone to act like us. And if you don't act like me, I can't believe it. You must not really be that strong of a Christian. Well, God picks a lot of different people, a lot of different personalities, and he sends them down the same road of defending truth. Unity. One gospel. In fact, within that group mentioned right there, Paul and those three guys, 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament were written. I mean, this is the compilation of the New Testament, almost. And they perceived the grace that was in, and they gave him the right hand of, of fellowship. That's partnership right there. So we go from diversity of the leaders. There's a lot of diversity. By the way, I didn't give you the fill-in, but B is his mission was accepted, his mission. Diversity and partnership, partnership. It was partnership in the ministry. One man said this, the way the first apostles treated one another is a model for ministry. And I mean, here's this conflict. Look at how they resolve the conflict. The true way to avoid strife is just what they, which is here proposed. Let there be on both sides perfect frankness. Let there be a willingness to explain, state things just as they are. Let there be a disposition to rejoice in the talents and the zeals and the success of others, though it should far outstrip our own, that no contention in the church should be. Okay, he, They went up to Jerusalem, they laid it out. I'm sure there was great frankness at that point and they were able to resolve the conflict. Did you notice that the apostles did everything they could to avoid strife? They rejoiced in the talents and successes of others. In other words, they weren't envious and jealous of Paul's success. Sometimes that's what destroys ministry. They were not interested in building their own little kingdoms. There was no envy, no competition. They only celebrated each other's ministry. They gave them the right hand of fellowship. Great. You go in this direction. We're going to go in this direction. I'm going to be praying for you. You pray for me. I went to New Tribes Missions this last couple weeks ago, and they said the number one reason why people leave the field is because they can't get along with fellow brethren. They can't avoid strife. Strife kills ministry. But here, these, these spiritual men, they, they work things out. And when they left, they gave each other the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Same gospel, serving the same Lord in the power of the Spirit. The only thing they said is, remember the poor. And he said, absolutely. Absolutely. I need to always remember the poor. In fact, I'm sure he was looking around. You know, I, I think to Paul, now remember this, he's looking around, he's looking at, he's saying, man, there seems to be so many widows and orphans. And all of a sudden, one of the widow starts whispering in the teenager's year. Actually, you'd be a 20-year-old. That, that was Saul. He killed your father. Remember? Because that's where, that's where a lot of the persecution went, was in Jerusalem. And, and Paul, being Saul, would have killed many of those individuals who then created many widows and orphans. So he said, yeah, absolutely, I'm going to remember the poor. I created some of them because of my hatred for the church before I got saved. But he said, now I need to be a soldier. 
And we need to be a soldier. How serious are you of that? Are you holding the truth? Do you know the gospel? Are you willing to defend it? Are you willing to defend the gospel that it's Christ alone, no matter who says it, or are you, willing, or are you going to back down? There's a story about an ambassador. He was sent to the Greek city of Sparta. That, that's back about, I think, about 800 years ago before Christ. And this ambassador he, on a diplomatic mission was surprised to find no walls protecting the city of Sparta. He exclaimed to the king, Sir, you have no fortifications for defense. Why is this? The king said, Come with me and I will show you the walls of Sparta. He led the ambassador to where the Spartan army stood in full battle array. And pointing proudly to his soldiers who stood fearlessly in place, he said, Behold, the walls of Sparta. Ten thousand men and every man's a brick. See, the, the guy asked, well, where's your bricks? Where's your walls? Where's your wall around Sparta? You don't have any walls. How can you protect? And he said, listen, every one of those soldiers are a brick. They're protecting Sparta. And I think as it pertains to us as believers in Jesus Christ, every one of us is a brick. Every one of us should be called to arms. We should be very vigilant to make sure that the gospel is not correct, uh, corrupted. We're the, we're the brick. We're the soldiers. We're the good soldiers. We need to know the truth and defend the truth and spread the truth. But do it like a soldier. A soldier doesn't do it when it's just convenient, right? A soldier doesn't fight the war when it's convenient, when it's comfortable. The soldier fights because he wants to please the commander. And if you're a Christian, you're in the army, and you're, you're in full battle array until Christ comes back. So whether it's at work or in your family whether it's at a family reunion, whether among friends. If you have an opportunity to spread the good news, that, that's your responsibility. If someone is speaking untruth, it's your responsibility. Wait, I'm a brick for truth. I'm a soldier for truth. Let me tell you the truth. Oh, I don't want to be criticized. Ask God for boldness because he's our commander and we need to represent him well.